Welcome, everybody. Another episode of No Driving Gloves. I hope you enjoyed last week's episode. That was kind of a little coup for us to get Derek to pull off that Andy Pilgrim interview. It's just the beginning of a few more. We've got a couple lined up. We've got we've got one coming up with Bruce with the local British Car Club, and he's going to discuss a little bit about British cars and their collectability and a little event that the Birmingham Motoring Club has coming up. Derek's uh, doing some... Uh, I don't know if we're allowed to say, but something to do with his museum and work. We'll leave it at that, but we haven't talked to you for, what, six weeks or so? Oh, yeah, it's been a while. Just been uh, a lot of odd things going on just with work and life in general. And just been been a while since I've been free on Wednesday night, you know? We know it's a little bit rough uh, being self-employed and traveling and... I know you've you've tried to make some of these shows, and we kind of say, you know, you do have to leave at like 3 in the morning. There's no sense in keeping you up until, you know, delaying you uh, an extra hour of going to bed. I know you still don't go to bed till 11 or something. Prepping for these uh, shows and things, I know you just did Good Guys a couple weekends ago. No, it didn't quite go the way you, you'd hoped, but, you know, that's part of the, the, the show circuit, I believe, right? Well, we did exactly what we wanted to do at the show. We won Truck of the Year finalist, and ultimately, you know, the goal is Truck of the Year early, good guys through good guys, and I guess we're a little short again. But you know what? That's that's. Uh, I've said it before, and I'll say it again. We don't build cars and trucks to go win trophies. Uh, we build them to win customers. As long as the customer we built that vehicle four is happy you know at the end of the day that's all you can ask for we all know that in the car show world or any world where judging is involved or picking is involved it's all just what somebody likes or what they don't like or it's an opinion no matter how you look at it it's an opinion you know it is what it is and uh it's not going to slow me down. I'll tell you that. <laughs> well, you've got you've got a few years of work ahead of you anyway, at least, or guaranteed. And you know, it might be politics and it's friends, and sometimes it's a good old boys club. That's the nature of car shows, and that I've you know I've been at some events, not naming them or even giving a, a range, but I've watched a guy win uh, best people's choice best to show because he went up and he bought like. 100, 150 tickets to that show, so he had 100, 150 ballots, and him and his family sat around and voted for his car. He, <laughs> he won pe- People's Choice Best to Show, and, well, if that's what made him feel good to have that trophy, I guess that's what it did. You know, it's not really fair to the second-place guy, but I've seen that. I've I've seen, uh, there was always a joke, previous job that I had, we always discussed a certain show, seemed that whoever bought the event poster at the Saturday night auction and dinner would somehow win the show the next day, be best to show, or his car, or it was just kind of funny. Uh, and you went back and looked, it didn't happen every year, but it happened most every year. So it's one of those things about car shows and, as say, politics and the game. And I think that'll lead us to the topic of tonight where you and I discuss we're going to, I've done uh, cars for concourse shows and then i've done cars for just um you know museum display and educational purposes and i've done cars just for the hell of it and have fun and saturday night cruise-ins and you've done the same thing on the you know hot rod side of everything 
and I'm sure you've done some casual stuff. I mean, you know, I know the stuff you built in college was more for casual Friday night cruises more than winning big awards. So we've all played that game and everybody dreams of being able to spend a million dollars on a restoration or going to, you know, calling up Big Oak Garage and say, hey, I've got a 55 post. I want something radical. What can you do for it? You know, money's no object. You build them a hell of a car. But there's some differences and there's some headaches. I'll let you lead in. What do you, what do you feel some of the uh, details and getting into, you know, when you start playing in that high-end game opposed to the, the Saturday night cruising? I think we both agree that, you know, sometimes it's nice just to have a Saturday night cruiser that you maybe can drive to work on Tuesday. Exactly. You know, we've, we've built them all. You know, we've built um, we've built cars with $15,000 budgets. We've built cars with million-dollar budgets. It's really ultimately what the customer wants to do with, with their car. Some guys love traveling the country and showing their cars off at the, the biggest shows there are and trying to win the biggest awards they can win. And then some guys... They don't care about an award for nothing. I mean, that is not why they're building a car. They want it to just drive and enjoy and take their grandkids for a ride, you know? Ultimately, the most of your higher-end show cars that we build here, you get to show them for a year, maybe two, you know, like the good guys type deal. You basically have a year. If you debut it late in the year, well, that's your year. If it's late in 2018, you got 2018, you know, to win a good guy specific award. You can go to other events and win Builder's Choice where other builders pick the top 10 or good guys picks the top 10 or whatever. But you're not going to win a of the year finalist if it came out late 2018. You're not going to do that in 2019. So, you know, you're kind of limited on how many times you can take your car and be eligible for that high-end award. So most of the time what happens is, you know, a perfect example, a couple of years ago, we built a 55 Chevy first series pickup truck. I say a couple, it's been four or five years ago. It done really, really well. Truck of the year finalist, builder's choice everywhere it went. Top 25 shades. I mean, the truck did really well. Cover of two magazines. And now it's not a daily driver, don't get me wrong, but the guy that that owns it drives it a lot, you know, and we put cruise control on it and a few things like that to where he can actually drive it and enjoy it. And it once it gets the first rock chip, the second one's a whole lot easier than the first one, you know. That's what he does. He drives it, enjoys it. And then the guys that we build the you know, the the cruise night type cars, of course, we can't build a car for $15,000 anymore. We just we just can't do it. Uh, that was my first budget I ever had. My first build that ever came through the shop was $15,000. But we just physically can't do that anymore. The not as expensive stuff, because it's all expensive, we'll take to a few shows, whether it sits in our booth, if, you know, if we're a vendor at that event or whatever. Then they take them home and, and they drive them and enjoy them. And most of these guys don't do cross country road trips. They just hit local cruise night, enjoy hanging out with their friends and going to dinner with their wife or whatever. 
It's kind of the same game in the restorations where you build a car and guys restoring it so that he can do some cruise nights and that, or you're building it for a, a concours level show. When you're at that top of the game, I mean, you're spending buckets of money, your business or mine, and the car has a life expectancy. I mean, really, uh, a, a top-line restoration can do one year on the concours circuit, and it can only do a couple of shows. A lot of cars that say Pebble, they cannot be shown anywhere for, you know, a year prior to Pebble. So a lot of cars debut at Pebble and then they some other concours or you pick the event that you really want to make the splash at or you think you have the best chance of winning or I guess it's make the splash and you hope the builder gets it done for that. I mean, if you're building a car for Amelia Island in March, which is fairly easy to hit because it's kind of the first show of the season. Those are the hardest ones to hit. (laughs) Well, you've got a few months to build up and, you know, you kind of know it's there. If you miss, there's a couple other chances. But if you're building one for Hilton Head, which happens into October, beginning of November, you miss it. And well, now you've got six more months to finish the car. And by then, that might not be the flavor of the day or such with the cars. It's really weird where if I'm, you know, say building a TR6 for a guy or restoring one for him, he's going to take that. He's going to hit a couple, you know, the British show for a couple of years and possibly the rest of his life with the car, you know, the local British show. And then he's going to hit a couple of cruise nights. And really, when you think, let's say we did a half million dollar restoration and the car gets shown four times and say it's four hours or five hours on the show. So you got 20 hours of enjoyment for that half million dollars. Or a guy puts fifty grand into restoring his twenty thousand dollar TR6, and all of a sudden, you know, he he's able to use that car three or four times a month for five or ten years. The the smile per dollar is a lot better investment on that lower end car than the the high end stuff. It's really what you know what the owner wants and wants to achieve. And I'll say it's it's kind of cool to be at the top shows and be looked at, and everybody's talking to you and. Uh, you know, you get to talk to all the, you know, famous people or the, in- the influencers there. I don't know if that's really worth, you know, I don't know if that's where it's at. I, I do enjoy going to the Saturday morning cruise in or Friday night cruise and hitting a parade or something with my car and kind of having fun and being one one of the crowd. It, maybe it's the way I grew up or, or lived. Less expensive cars don't have an expiration date. I guess that's kind of where... It makes more sense to build a hot rod than restore a car is smile per dollar, you know, because like you said, once once you build a Pebble Beach car and it goes to Pebble Beach and then you show it, you know, four or five more times, it's done. Yeah, you could get a Pebble Beach car out and drive it and enjoy it, but you're not going to go park it at a cruise night somewhere. You know, there's just at least I, I've never seen a concourse restoration car at a cruise night where your hot rod, you know, that's what it's really designed to do. It's designed to be driven. You know, just about every upgrade we make other than visual changes is a performance type upgrade. So it can get out on the road and run 80, 90 mile an hour and keep up with traffic and stop on a dime and shifting gears and having fun and burning tires and stuff like that. You know, maybe the smile per dollar on the hot rod side, that could be why the 
the hot rod industry is just freaking booming right now. I guess it's really what you're what you're up to and what you you know again your final goals with the car and what your tastes are. One nice thing, I guess you know the advantage, you know possibly in the restoration is you're restoring a car back to original and it's there's probably three or four people at least that want it because it, most cars were a production vehicle or even say a one-off Delahaye custom body or a Duesenberg or something like that, there's still people that want them and they have a market where you have a lot of fun with the hot rods and such. But, you know, sometimes they're so unique and built for a person that there's the the market's a little bit more limited. So I want to say there's an argument each way to go and what you want to do. I agree with you 100%. As far as selling a car, once once you're done with it and getting rid of it, uh, you can sell a restored car a whole lot easier. As far as on the high end side of things, okay, you can sell a restored car a little easier than you can a hot rod. That's you know because we custom tailor each car to the owner. You know it's been built for this specific guy. We put the seat where he wants it. We put the steering wheel where he wants it. We put the shifter where he wants it. The pedals where he wants it. It's perfectly comfortable for him. Where somebody else gets in it and they're like, "Man, eh, this ain't worth crap." Where an original car, hey, it is what it is. That's the way it was in, you know, nineteen, you know, forty. So I'm happy with that. Yeah, I agree with you a hundred percent on that. Yeah, it's just kind of interesting on the the similarities, but the differences on on that end. And I want to say it's more enjoyable, but I don't know which way to say is. Building your hot rod cooler is building your Concord car cooler is restoring a car for Saturday is building a Camaro in your garage, you know, for same thing. Go to the strip each weekend with it or just to go to the cruises. You know, that's the fun thing about cars is you can do whatever you want. I mean, there's a way for everybody to have fun with what whatever budget there is. I guess part of the focus of this episode or the direction I wanted to say is I, I talk to a lot of people that, oh, I wish I could have that. I wish I could have that. I wish I could have a 918 Porsche. I wish I could have, uh, you know, Cadzilla, say, from Boyd or things like that that, you know, they're really unobtainable or an Ed Roth car or something like, you know, some these dream cars everybody ha- wants and has. But, they're, you know, there's problems associated with them and no matter how much money you have. I mean, I, I work around extremely expensive, extremely rare cars every day. And, you know, they take a lot of maintenance and they take a lot of work. And I can have just as much fun. And we'll say the museum I work, you know, we've got things from $3,000 in our car collection to multi-million dollars. And one of my favorite cars to get in is this uh, home restoration of a 1950 Plymouth. And it's, it's an all-stock car. It's all original. Uh, three Three on the tree transmission. Not very fast, but it just does everything, and it feels good, and it's a fun, enjoyable car. You don't have to be at that top level, and I people ask me, what car would you take out of the collection, and if you could have anything, and realistically, yeah, there's some you could, t- you know, if you're taking it and you're not allowed to sell it for money, that Plymouth would be high on my list. It might not be the car, but it's going to be up there, fun and enjoyable, and probably worth probably worth 20 grand, 15, 20 grand, something like that. I have actually haven't looked at a, a price on it in a couple of years. It was donated probably eight years ago. Trusty old steed. 
Yeah, sometimes it's those cars that you really just get out and enjoy. We've got a 66 Cadillac in the shop right now that we actually just started today. It's been here for a couple of months. Uh, really, really nice. Pretty much all original 66 Cadillac. It's been lowered a little bit, but other than that, it's original. Man, we drove this thing all over town for the last couple of months and has just had a ball. And when we get finished with it, yeah, it's going to be a really, really nice car. It's actually going to be more roadworthy. It's going to have better brakes, a better motor, better suspension. I bet it's not going to be any more fun to drive than the way it was this morning before we started taking it apart. And I guess that's, again, like I say, the point of this episode is just reminding people, have fun with what you have. You know, it's always nice to have goals, to have something a little bit better. But don't say, well, because I'm driving whatever. Have fun with it. Do it. I mean, we all probably drive to work every day, and we pass this, you know, say 1993 Honda Civic DX that's got a ground effect kit falling off of it and a rusted out coffee can exhaust on it, tinted back window with a bubble in the middle, as Mix-a-Lot would say. But you know what? The kid's having fun. And I, I, I never criticize anybody like that. You know, this whole thing should be for fun. And if all of a sudden you roll up in your pristine 57 Chevy or, you know, a new Corvette and, you know, go, what the heck's up with this kid? And, you know, he, he doesn't need to be with us or park next to me. The kid's trying. It took me years to have enough money to do do things with cars. You know, I go back to my Isuzu pickup in 1990, 91. I didn't have a lot of money. I did what I could. I, you know, I adapted a quicker ground effect kit from a S10 to fit my Isuzu. I had Mustang two louvers, you know, painted and put them on my hood as, you know, hood vents and things like that. Yeah. Looking back, it was cheesy as hell. Um, they weren't painted to match because I couldn't match the black paint on the truck. I couldn't afford to paint them. So all my accessories were added on in blue or purple or something. And I eventually got to a point where I could afford to do the engine swap. I eventually got to the point where I could paint the truck properly and have black and purple and a tonneau cover and the convertible kit. And if you would have started to insult and pick on me, you know, Hell, I might have grown up and been that asshole lawyer and <laughs> that, that I really wanted to be when I grew up. I think we, you know, I don't know how how we progressed in the episode, but here I am all of a sudden defending the newcomer to the hobby and encouraging those of us that are there to embrace him. Who, like I say, who cares what he's driving or what the sta- you know status is? Eight bucks an hour at Pizza Hut or McDonald's or you know Seven Eleven doesn't buy a lot when. You pick up a catalog, and I think the you know aftermarket exhaust for a Subaru is seven hundred dollars. You know that's a lot of time when you got to you know make eight bucks an hour, and you've got to pay rent and possibly feed yourself and a significant other and you know clothes on your back and things like that. It it's rough. You know, encourage the kids and encourage the people that have them. Um, and it doesn't matter if they're 18 or 25 or 37 or 65. Cars are supposed to be fun. Yep, that's why we started this. It's supposed to be fun. And whether you get your enjoyment out of winning trophies, driving your car, and not even going to a car show. Just getting in it and driving it to the grocery store and back. Or not even stopping at the grocery store. Just getting out and wasting gas. You know, if if that's what it's about, then, hey, 
That's what it's about. Me, myself, I like doing all of it. You know, I like going to car shows. I like I like driving my hot rod. I like going to local cruise nights. I like I like going to restoration shows, you know, concourse type shows. I like going to the world of wheels where they don't even move. They're just sitting on stands and some of them don't even run, you know, the artistic side of it. I like going to the drag strip and running them up and down the drag strip. So any anything that has to do with four wheels, I'm pretty well pretty well addicted to it. <laughs> and that's the whole name name of the game there. I think with that we could uh maybe we'll jump into seeing if we can get so we've covered a little bit about that on the what do I want to say? En- enjoyment of your car. And the smaller shows and how, how they really benefit the hobby, which kind of leads us into where I'm going to go and we're going to jump over. I'm going to speak with Birmingham Motoring Club. I think it, I think all car clubs, I mean, it's just a gathering of like-minded individuals. Well, you know, the the Viper Club, the Porsche Club have similar mottos. And then it's, you know, it's the cars that brought us together. It's the people that keep us coming back. And that's that's, a, that's the whole exactly. thing with the the Birmingham Motoring Club or even the Porsche Club or the Viper Club. Yeah, you might have to, uh, you know, I joked Porsche Club is the most expensive club in town to join because you have to own a Porsche to join a PCA. You can join the Viper Club. You can buy join the Ferrari Club in North America and not own the car and still go to their events. And it's just, again, like-minded people having a good time. And that's how you become, a, you know, a Ferrari owner is you go to the, the clubs not owning a car and chatting with the people and maybe learning of a deal or learning of the car that you can buy and service in your garage. And, and that's some of the stuff I think the Birmingham Motoring Club will be displaying at their upcoming show. And yes, I know we're a national podcast in that. We're hoping uh, they can help spread some light on why you want to join your local European British club and if you're in that or how to seek them out. I think we're going to go ahead and uh, drop Will from the show now and join our representative from the uh, Birmingham Motoring Club. Hope everybody has a good week. Thanks a lot for joining us, Will, and hopefully we'll talk to you next week. And Sounds maybe good. maybe have Derek back. Oh yeah, yeah. I think well, I think next week's the week we'll all three be back. We'll give it a try. And of course, uh, if you've got any ideas for topics or guests for the show, BMC reached out to be on here to discuss the show. We welcome your input. Okay, as Will and I have alluded to in the first half of this episode, we're trying something new and we're having a guest join us. Uh, we've got uh, Bruce from uh, the Birmingham Motoring Club, which used to be formerly known as the Birmingham British Motoring Club a couple of years ago. Uh, actually, when I was serving as an officer with the club, we became more encompassing and started to include European, Japanese, just got it off off the little uh, island of Great Britain and kind of became uh, the the club of uh, Birmingham, Alabama for the forgotten cars a little bit. And I, you know, I think the club and that has expanded. Uh, I haven't attended a meeting in a while. Am I still correct on that, Bruce? Or, uh, well, yes, that's true, John. We're still looking forward, and we've always always enjoyed your when you when you get there. So, please come on back. Uh, it, it's uh, we're at, we're at about thirty five thirty five forty members now. We meet on Tuesdays uh, once a month, and it's a really nice bunch of people. Like you've always said, I certainly enjoyed your uh, your talks when you were there. I've always enjoyed, but it's just 
<laughs> how life gets busy. And oh, I didn't mean to put you on the spot, buddy. But it, it, uh, it's, you know, it's certainly, yeah, life moves on. It does do that. But uh, I appreciate you inviting me on tonight. Uh, I understand you want to talk about some British cars. I've got two that I can certainly bend your ear on. Yeah, let's uh, let's find out a little bit about your uh, history and what, what brought you to the Birmingham Motoring Club or BMC and a little bit of your, you know, car history and uh, background there, and then we'll get to the the, the core of core of the thing and uh, kind of discuss your upcoming show. That well, I, I certainly don't want to bore your listeners too much. I'm assuming that they're all gearheads and car guys and gals. The car I originally started with is a 1963 Morgan. I always like to tell people it was either the greatest move in my college career or the worst. I had cut my teeth on an MG Midget Mark III when I was in college, and I'd always wanted a Morgan. I'd always heard that they were the British car to have, and I didn't know very much about them, and my dad actually found one in Memphis. It was used, and we did everything wrong. We did not test drive it. We did not take it to a mechanic. I just said I wanted it. I took all the money out of my savings account and bought it for $4,000. It was a nasty color brown, but I drove it in graduate school, and the car nickeled and dimed me to death and finally uh, decided to fix the door. You know, the Morgans, one of the myths is that they're they're made out of wood, and, and that's really not true, so, so, so to speak. The, the frame is actually steel, but the subframe that attaches to the frame uh, is um, Belgian ash. It, it, it is wood. So one of the doors had rotted, and I decided to fix the door, like thinking, oh, this is no big deal. And two years later, my father asked me very strongly to get the car, which was now in pieces, out of both garages. We then took it to restore here in, in Birmingham. It took uh, a long time to get it finished for various reasons, like you said earlier. Life goes on. I got a job. My parents passed away. You know, so we really had... had things going on, but it took quite a while to get it to where where you where you see it today. I think you have and, seen it once or twice, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I've actually, I've came out, I think I uh, did an appraisal for you a few years ago on the car, but when you... When oh, you did. That's right. I forgot that. Uh, and, that and thank you for doing that, because that was a very, um, I was very new at the time to the collector car world, and uh, that appraisal, thank God I have not had to use it. The car has not been in a wreck. But I thought it was a very wise piece of information you par- uh, gave me back then, and I certainly appreciate that. Uh, let me interrupt and say that's one of the benefits to our listeners that, you know, you know, Will, Derek, and I always promote getting involved with the car clubs and car culture. And that's one of the things is you were new to the collector car hobby, kind of. I mean, you did the restoration and you dabbled, but once you started coming to the the club meetings and that, and you you know you got to meet me, you got to meet a lot of other car, car guys. Well, you know what's so funny, or that's not funny now; it's just sort of standard. But uh, one of the things that I have read is that when you want to get into the classic car world, whether it's American Muscle or foreign, you really need to find a club and start going to the meetings and meeting the people because they will tell you about where to get the best paint job and where to get the wheels balanced and how to fix the battery. I mean, there, there's a world of information in the Birmingham Motoring Club, and it covers all kinds of cars, French, British, and Japanese. I mean, there's there's just a, a lot of information there. 
So that was a good thing to do. In fact, I went on and joined several other clubs to get in more information because that's sort of a thing you need to have when you have one of these cars. But I've really enjoyed my time with the Birmingham Motoring Club. If uh, memory serves me correctly, uh, the, uh, the Morgan then inspired uh, kind of a couple other purchases in that, you know, as you've, be, you know, as the career concluded and you retired and you're beginning to enjoy life. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I will tell you, yeah, the listeners need to know I've retired, that's true, and I do have some time on my hands. The Morgan is a high-maintenance car in the sense of it's British and you have to check everything all the time when you go somewhere with it and make sure it's not, you know, leaking oil or going to die of uh, electrical failure. And I'll tell you, if you keep the cars up and you take care of them, they pretty much will not let you down, but you do have to... You have to do things more to them than you do a modern-day car. But you're right. Uh, the Morgan uh now had it for 10 years since I've been retired, and it's been a great car. I happen to now have purchased uh, a 1974.5 MGB GT. That is a car that has really fascinated me. And you had spoken on one of your shows earlier about restoration versus preservation. And I remember coming to one of your uh, meetings. It's really fascinating that my... Other life was an archaeologist, and so preservation is a real thing for archaeologists. And you know, and then the restoration, also dealing with telling the story. So I wanted to keep this, uh, and it was a true barn find. It was we found it in a basement. One of the members of the car club found it and was able to get it and locate it, and we were able to bring it back. And I wrestled with the concept of trying to. Do I want to restore it or preserve it as it is? And it was, the body was great, but the interior was pretty much gone. We have decided to not preserve it, but restore it to the way it looked in 1974 when it was sitting on the showroom floor. We're not going to add anything to it to make it fancy or anything, go down that road of modifying it, super modifying it or anything like that. It's blue. It's what they call teal blue or mineral blue. And it's one of the... uh, 9,626 cars produced that year. So it's it's really quite fascinating. And my wife has told me I've got to get it out of the garage before <laughs> Christmas. I think some of your car guys may be laughing at that. but yeah, I was going to say, is it, we're approaching winter and somebody's car is in the driveway? <laughs> no, um, that really isn't the case, but she's kind of let us know that it's time now. And we've had the car for about a year and four months. Uh, and it really... Uh, it's coming along fine, but and I try to do something every day on it. But it's those things where you have to, you know, get the parts and you have to make sure they are the right ones and you have to make sure they're period correct. And you know that as a as a person who does this for a living, it's it's frustrating. You have some days when the new part that you ordered doesn't quite fit like the old yeah. original did. You you get that, stuck that, in some that's areas. That's one of the uh, perks, I guess, are enjoyable things about the old cars, hoping that your reproduction or your NOS part actually fits the car. And man. I've become really good at searching on eBay, and um, there, there's there's some parts, places that I go and look in England now to, to get what I want. So it's quite, it's quite an adventure, and I really was reluctant to start this, and I've had some great help from the people in the club, uh, particularly I'd shout out to Randy Darden, who's been just absolutely marvelous in letting me use tools and helping me and, and guiding me. And um, I wouldn't have tried this without. It, it's some help. always an adventure when you d- you do it yourself. But it's uh, there's there, there, 
Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I got to admit, now I've had, I've, I'm not doing it all myself. There's a, there's a lot of people, uh, that I'm going to have to write a, a letter to and say, thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, the engine, when engine transmission was done in Mississippi, paint job was done, uh, by a gentleman in Leeds. So, I mean, there's, there's different people who've helped me a great deal and said, don't do that, do this. And so we're trying to make sure that it, we keep it as authentic as possible. But it's a great little car, and uh, it was MG's first uh, hardtop. I mean, they, they decided to put the top on the car, and uh, it went basically from uh, about 65 to 1980. It actually, they even stuck a V8 in it. Now, the V8 engine wasn't brought over here, but you can imagine a Rover V8 engine in a car that size. It's quite a quite an, an issue. Uh, I'm... <laughs> Go, and I guess the other thing say I'm not going to let ahead. you get out of this because uh, I've actually recently had some listeners inquire and go, hey, do you talk about uh, Japanese cars? And I'm going to say you've got one. Uh, you've got one. Well, go briefly, okay. but you've kind of got a unique one in your garage. I I do. I have a um, 2017 Mazda MX-5, what they call a limited edition. This is one of a thousand minus, I think it's number 800 and something, but it, um, it's the meteor gray color, uh, I think is what they call it. And that was an interesting, you know, Mazda was going to launch this car. I saw it on the internet. I fell in love with the hot, retractable hardtop and the flying buttresses on the wings on the, on the top. And, uh, I thought, well, I never win anything, but you had to go online. You had to hit the button and make a selection, and so I did that, but I didn't get anything back. I had no idea I was going to get one until I received an email and a form that I had to fill out, and it asked me specifically how many other Mazdas did I have, and I had actually had a truck, a field truck, and I'd had an 808 station wagon when I was in college, which ran better than the Morgan. So anyway, I I submitted all this information to him, still didn't hear anything, and then suddenly got an, an email back from the head of the company saying, "Yes, you, you're you're one of the you're in the 1,000 group. Now you have to go pay for it." I mean, they weren't giving them away, uh, but the folks at the Med Center Mazda did a really nice deal with me, and so I was able to get one. If you haven't driven a, some days I'll drive the Morgan, which as you know is a four-speed non-synchro mesh car, and then you step into the Miata which is six speeds, and you go from 65 brake horsepower, you know, up to, uh, I think the the MX probably has about 100, I want to say 165 horsepower, something like that. But it's quite a different time capsule, if you will. And so it gives me a really interesting spread of what I can drive and how, I mean, you take a turn in the Morgan and you're basically pulling the wheel and that big 15-inch wheel around, and the Miata you just touch the wheel and it it corners like it's on rails. It's just an amazing car, and I can understand why. I say I tell stories all the time that you know I'll, I'll occasionally do demonstration laps in a Lotus Eleven Series One car, which is a split axle, uh, four speed, and then turn around and get into a Lotus Twenty Three afterwards, which you know is independent suspension, a lot more powerful. Everything It's kind of the evolution of the Lotus 11. And one day I actually did my demos in reverse, and I drove the 23, then the 11. almost crashed the 11 because uh-huh. it's amazing. They're two different animals, and I'm sitting here thinking, as you're describing, four-speed, non-synchro mesh, and then you get into a Miata that has... 
a six-speed, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, it's fully synchromesh six-speed, and it, it, it'll go, I mean, I have to be very careful on the highway because I'll be sitting at 80 in no, no time at all. And um, it, it, it is, and, you know, it's, of course, it's got all the electronics, modern-day stuff that, that you'd want in a, in a car. Uh, I was going to tell you, maybe your listeners already know this, we're talking about Japanese cars. The Miata, you know, is now over 25 years old, and the NAs, the original um, Miatas, are now collector's items. If you go on to Hemmings, you can actually find low-mileage Miatas that are now $25,000, which is kind of crazy. And there is now a restoration program in Japan only, not here in America yet. You can take your original Miata NA. They will rebuild it for you with authorized parts, and they'll they'll it'll come out of the factory looking just like it did when you bought it. And it'll run you about $35,000 in American money. Several uh, Japanese clients have already gone through this process. Yeah, I guess it's kind of equivalent to what Mercedes and some of the other car makers do about advertising that you can always get your parts. Now the Miatas can do that. So if you're in a, in a, a person in the, that has one of those original NAs, uh, you can pretty much find the parts for Let's it. See, I think I had, surprise the listeners, I, I had a Miata back probably... 15 years ago, a 96 uh, Miata with the 1.8 liter. I always loved that little car, and I, I wasn't aware of that restoration program. I was going to say... I just read about it probably about two weeks ago. Uh, it's in the Mazda on their website, but they are now... I mean, people, you know, Mazda, I can remember being in college when the Mazda came out, and, of course, the MGs didn't get across the pond anymore. I mean, and I really wanted a sports car, and the only opportunity I couldn't afford a Corvette... So the only thing that was open was these Miatas, these, quote, Japanese cars. And I fell in love with it, but I couldn't afford it at the time. I mean, it just, you're going to school and trying to trying to make life work. And uh, I just thought they were great little cars. I, I wanted, and, wanted uh, one from day one. Was, I remember seeing it, like, on the cover of Car and Driver, $13,900 or $800 for a, you know, base package car with steel wheels. And had wanted one for years. Well, you know, a lot of people threw shade at them for a long time, but they are the car that saved the SECA. I mean, car. I mean, they were raced and slalomed, and they even won their class at a Grand Prix, I think, a couple of years ago in the 90s. So, I mean, it's a very successful car, and uh, very. it's the smallest. I didn't realize this. It's the smallest of all the Japanese car companies. Uh, but Mazda is clearly... Um, I'm going to be cliche here, but they're clearly driven. They they enjoy the driver. They really want you to enjoy the car, and they've thought about the driver. I mean, when you get in the car, it's very ergonomic. I mean, everything is right there. And then, of course, when you when you get in the, the Morgan, you've got a wooden dash facing you with no tachometer on this particular Morgan. Mine is the four four. It's the very base model, so they didn't have a tach. So on mine, when you shift, you have to listen. You have to be listening to the gears, and you have to be listening to the revs, and then make the shift appropriately. I was very startled in the in the new Miata. You know, when you're on a hill, all of us old guys that learned how to shift, you're on a hill, and you don't want your car to roll back. So there's a way to heel and toe that, so you don't do that. The Miata automatically holds the position for three seconds, which I found very frustrating, and I had to learn to reshift the car when it was on the hill. Another one of those things that makes it an adventure when you drive the Morgan in the morning and the Mazda in the afternoon. Yeah, it's pretty much, pretty much so. 
it is it is it is quite interesting. And I was going to say, if you want to talk about British cars, the Morgan Motor Car Company, 2019, they are celebrating their 110th anniversary. They're the only company that is still privately owned, and they sell cars all over the world. And actually, it used to be that Morgans couldn't come into the country now because of it used to be the safety standards and the bumpers and all that. So there was a long 20-year period there around 1980 when you couldn't get a new Morgan into the into the country. They were just, you, you couldn't get them. Uh, but now, because of the, I guess you might know about the legislation, because they're considered continuation cars, you can have a brand new 2019 Morgan Roadster V6 Ford powered. Um, if you want to spend that kind of money, they're, they're a little, little pricey, but they can now bring them into the United States. But I was going to say the Morgans, of course, they, everybody got a, really excited a couple of years ago with the three-wheeler. And then, of course, they got the Roadster, the, v, the V6, and, and you can get a V8 in it if you want. And then there's the 4.4 and the Plus 4. So they've got a full line of sports cars. What's interesting about them, and then you know this, the engines, Morgan has never built their own engine. My engine is a Ford, basically a Ford Pinto engine in, that, in the Morgan. Uh, BMW supplies their engines, Ford supplies their engines, and Mazda supplies the gearboxes on some of them, not all of them. But so it's it's really kind of a international company. Now the Mar- Morgan Company has always interested me, and uh, when I lived in Northern Virginia, the one of the top dealers at the time in the country was just down the street from my house, roughly just down the street. And I know there's also a really I think they've since closed, but I know there's also a large dealer out west, and we see them around. But Morgan's also that stubborn company that, in what was about 1935, they decided cars should have four wheels and went to the four wheel version, and kind of, and did. You're right. Um, but, well, it was due to taxes. I mean, back then the British were you were charged by the number of wheels on your vehicle, so they kept the the what they call the three wheeler, the the trike. They kept that until 1936, and in 36, well, 35, I think, 36, they decided to go with a four-wheeler. And if you see mine, even though mine's a 63, the design from 1936 to 19, it hasn't changed. Even today, the modern 2019 Roadster looks pretty much like the one sitting in the garage. I mean, of course, it's got newer. They don't have wooden dashes anymore, and they better heaters, and you know, lots of modern equipment on the car. But uh, the design—they really haven't changed the design. The wings are the same. The seating, of course, is better. My car had bladder seats that you blow up. Think whoopee cushion. You literally blew the seat up like a like a one of those floats, and then you stuffed it in the leather pouch. And then you sat on it. And of course, that worked fine until the air leaked out, and then you were just sort of sitting on a piece of plywood. So it was very kind of basic transportation. And of course, you know, there's all kinds of jokes about them. I mean, they only have to drive 90 miles because that's the breadth of breadth of England and stuff like that. And how I get the joke about the termites all the time. It comes with a wooden frame, and yes, the wooden frames did rot, but there's ways to fix that now. And you can buy if you choose to get into a Morgan and decide you want that to be your classic, you need to get the best one you can afford because they're kind of pricey to start getting parts together. The engine parts are not so bad. I mean, it's a Ford Pinto engine, but the body parts can be a little bit difficult. I know you guys out at Barber had one for a while, 
and let me photograph it, which was great. I appreciated that. Uh, well, we we had the Morgan for a while, and then with a little bit of irony, the differentials in the Lotus Mark 10s that I've been restoring over the last six or seven years, and even the uh, Mark 8 series cars, it's basically a Morgan differential. It's a gear set, and it's a, uh, and it actually uses, I guess, the front housing, and then Chapman just kind of did his own rear cover to make it look like his, but... There's some of that Morgan that trips or slips in there. Well, you know the the sliding front axle, that arrangement that they've got on the front of those cars is just is really it's kind of goofy, but it, it works. If you hit a pothole at the wrong speed, you wind up getting a sort of a left right left right bounce on your <laughs> on your on your front end of your car, which is very disconcerting. Shaking the steering wheel out of your hands it's kind of you got to be kind of careful of what what you hit in that car it's a fun car it's been a lot of fun owning it and kind of i'm kind of like jay leno in the sense that you know i'm going to pass it on to somebody else and let them enjoy it too and the same thing for the gt when it's done i mean we're i'm a, i'm from the school that says drive them enjoy them have fun with them now my car i don't put it on a trailer I drive it. It's got chips of paint, you know, coming off of it here and there. And I've done some things to it, like I've moved the battery from the back up to the front, so it's easy to service. It's not a. It's a driver as opposed to a a trailer car. That's kind of where I am in, in my collecting world. I decided they're too much fun. You want you you want to drive. Well, is that what you're going to take out to uh, the, sh- the show that's coming up? Yeah, we're having you on to kind of promote granted it's a birmingham yeah let's talk about the show for a second yes uh the morgan will be there uh it's called sports cars at brookwood village it's going to be on a saturday november the 3rd from nine o'clock in the morning to 2 p.m and we are welcoming all sports cars and classic automobiles if you've got an mgb if you've got a nissan a datsun if you've got a, a mustang if you've got an american car we want you to come out because we look at these cars as rolling art. These these are cars that are classics. We're going to be featuring cars of Jaguar. I know we're going to have an XKE there. There will probably be some other Jaguars there, uh, both modern Jaguars and late model ones, and they're incredible automobiles. I think the XKE was labeled what Enzo Ferrari said. It was one of the most beautiful cars in the world. So we're going to have some interesting cars there. I want everybody to come out and take a look at it. Of course, being at Brookwood Village, November the 3rd, Alabama's away. Uh, Auburn, I think Auburn's playing at Texas A&M, so it's, it's a great time to come out. You can go to the car show, and it won't interfere with your football. The people who bring their cars, who register their cars, it's only a $20 entry fee for the car. If you want to put your MG or your Ferrari out there, it's $20. It's free for those spectators, so if you don't have a a car or if your classic car is not ready to show yet come on out and look and see get some ideas and see what other people are doing with their cars i also need to tell your uh, listeners they can go to birminghammotoringclub.com that's our website you can register online you can pay with a credit card or paypal you can register by mail and you can register the day of the show you can pay now you can go online and pay or you can pay the day of the show. It shouldn't be, we've tried to make it as easy for people to come out and show their car, make it as easy as possible for them. We are located, the show will be at Brookwood Village. As you face Brookwood Village, it's to the left. Uh, there's a restaurant over there, I think, and it's right behind, on the left-hand side of Brookwood Village, in the parking lot back there. There'll be a lot of signage, there'll be some flags. 
You'll drive in. They'll, if you pre-registered, that'd be great. We'll just basically take your name and direct you to a parking spot. We look forward to everybody coming out and seeing these cars. I'm hoping to be able to. Uh, I hope you'll be able to come out there too, John. I'm not sure. I ought to be honest. I'm, I'm honest, putting you on the spot. To schedule that far <laughs> out, but I usually try to make make it out there uh, and try not to cause too many problems when I'm there. Well, let me tell you, we're getting we're getting some great sponsorship from Brookwood Village, World Class Autos, Empire Auto House, Jolly Ranchers, Seasick Records are some of the sponsors that have already signed up. So we're always looking for more sponsors. So if there is a sponsor out there, you know, certainly get in touch with us. Uh, we'd love to have your name out there, too. Well, let me throw out there that Brookwood Village is in uh, Birmingham, Alabama, because some of, a lot of our listeners are n- nowhere near Birmingham. <laughs> uh, w- well, I was going to say, if it, I, I forgot that we are more than just local here. When you go to the website, there is a uh, Brookwood Village. You can get directions to it. So if you have listeners in Montgomery or in Chattanooga or anywhere else that are coming, I hadn't really thought of that, but there's lots of hotels in the area coming in from Atlanta. Uh, you certainly, it's right there off the interstate, uh, so it would be easy to find it. Uh, contact us on the webpage, and we'll have somebody get back to you and give you, uh, like I said, there's directions on the webpage. We want to make it real easy for people to come and find us, bring their cars, and enjoy the show. And let me also add, we, we didn't mention it, and in typical Birmingham Motoring Club fashion, every year they do their show. At, you know, They generate a little bit of money, and they always make a generous donation. And I think this year... Yes. It's, uh, cam- it's to Camp Smile a Mile, yes. We, this is our fourth annual event at Brookwood, and Camp Smile a Mile is our charity event. So when you register that $20, uh, that doesn't go to the club. That goes totally to Camp Smile a Mile. Uh, they provide childhood cancer um, uh, services for children with cancer. So it's a great charity, and we really enjoy them, and they uh, we're just very pleased that we can make that donation to them. So somebody's out there worried that the money goes to the club. No, the money goes to Camp Smile Amount, every penny of it. Um, we don't take anything for it. All the club members volunteer their times and services. No, we, we do thank you for joining us today, uh, Bruce. We got a lot out of you. Uh, I know we originally said about <laughs> a 10-minute, but we went a little over 30 minutes here chatting about Morgans and Miatas and MGs. And, okay. And, you know, I've like I said, I went to this show many years. I've put this show together for a few years. I've always uh-huh. enjoyed it, always had a, you know, a great time. Uh, so... I'll do my best to make it on November 3rd. And, um, again, that's November 3rd, 9 to 2, so you can swing out there. 9 to 2, Brookwood Village, November 3rd. And thank you, John, for having me. I really appreciate you giving us this opportunity. So thank you, Bruce. And, uh, well, you don't have a meeting between now and then. Maybe I'll just see you on the 3rd. Okay. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye.